0: Women like me aren't supposed to run for office. I wasn't born to a wealthy or powerful family. Mother from Puerto Rico, dad from the South Bronx. I was born in a place where your zip code determines your destiny. My name is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I'm an educator, an organizer, a working class New Yorker. I've worked with expectant mothers, I've waited tables, and led classrooms. And going into politics wasn't in the plan.
1: That's a clip from the viral campaign video that introduced Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to the world. Like her campaign, it was made on a shoestring budget, and nothing about it was like a traditional campaign ad. Ocasio-Cortez, or AOC as she's commonly known, wrote the ad herself. A month later, she scored a huge upset victory in the New York District 14 Democratic primary.
2: Veteran New York City Democratic Congressman Joe Crowley has gone down to primary
1: defeat tonight at the hands of a hard left 28 year old opponent
3: named Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez.
1: Six months later, she would be sworn in at the age of 29, the youngest Congresswoman in American history. By that point, AOC had already played a key role in bringing the Green New Deal into the national political arena. We talked about that in episode one.
2: Environmental activists joined by the New York Congresswoman-elect Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, occupied House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi. Without
1: Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, it's very possible most of us would never have heard of the Green New Deal. But a year before the sit-in, in late 2017, almost no one had heard of AOC. She was working as a bartender. So how did she go from mixing margaritas to being a political powerhouse with her name on the Green New Deal? As she said in her campaign video, going into politics wasn't in the plan. So how did it become the plan?
4: At the time, we wanted to recruit 535 people, which is a number of, you know, U.S. House representatives and senators to just take over the entire government, you know, take over all of Congress.
1: That story coming up on this week's episode of Generation Green New Deal. I'm your host, Sam Eilertson. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Generation Green New Deal. In April 2015, Bernie Sanders announced that he was running for president. He announced his candidacy standing in front of a tiny podium outside the U.S. Capitol Building, with no supporters there and only a handful of reporters. He was seen as an extreme long shot. His entrance into the race was treated almost like a sideshow.
2: He may be the most uh, unusual presidential candidate we've seen in a long time. He is 73 years old. He has a thick Brooklyn accent. He is from Vermont, and he is a self-described socialist.
1: But within a few months, he was packing in crowds. Even Bernie was caught off guard by his own success. I remember uh,
4: one of the senior staffers I was talking to me at one point. He told the story about how, like, Bernie was coming to, like, a Minnesota rally, and there was, like, a a line going around the stadium, and Bernie's like, "Oh, what, you know, who was here before me? Who'd they come to see?" And, and the and the staffer was like, "Oh, they're here to see you, Bernie." And he was just like, "What? <laughs> What's going on?"
1: That's Shoykot Chakrabarty, who worked on Bernie's campaign as director of organizing technology.
4: The thing that was exciting to me about Bernie Sanders was uh, he was just coming out and saying a few radical truths—not even that many.
3: The reason that people do not perceive that we are living in the wealthiest country in the history of the world is that almost all of the wealth and much of the income is going to the top 1%.
1: Shoikot was a 29-year-old software engineer living in San Francisco, but he was getting disillusioned with the Silicon Valley bubble. You
4: know, I, I kind of was part of the generation of people that got recruited the Silicon Valley when um, the message was sort of like, Silicon Valley is going to be the way to change the world, you know, and do good stuff in the world. And, and I actually believed it, you know, as a total a total believer. And then you like live here for a while and you see the actual, uh, these like large systemic problems that tech just has no chance of solving. And climate change was a, a big one, you know, and I, and I did some research at the time trying to figure out like, what are, you know, what are the tech solutions to climate change? What are people doing? And it became obvious really quickly, like none of them are even anywhere close to solving the problem, you know. So uh, the Sanders campaign's at, at least talking about problems in a big way. Um, so that was exciting. And I just kind of started doing whatever I could to help.
1: Shoycott ended up leaving his life in San Francisco behind and moving to Burlington to work for Bernie. And he wasn't the only one to drop everything and road trip from California to Chile, Vermont.
5: I was living out in California, at Orange County, California. I was a community college student, and I was working a handful of different job, like retail, restaurant. Um, I was like an assistant at an attorney's office, uh, stuff like that.
1: That's Alexandra Rojas. At the time, she was trying to figure out how to juggle getting her degree without going into debt. In the summer of 2015, she started volunteering for the Bernie Sanders campaign.
5: I became one of those like crazy (laughs) super volunteers and I was like okay I'm done and the rest of my friends like we're all dropping out and we're gonna go we're gonna go work on the campaign. So we started off as interns and actually drove from uh, Orange County, California all the way to Vermont.
1: Alex and Shoikot wound up working together on the campaign's distributed organizing team. They traveled around the country coordinating and training volunteers.
5: We were going across the country, and one of the things that we continued to hear everywhere was like, you know, it's going to be great if Bernie's elected president, but Right now, it feels like Congress is the biggest barrier. How are we going to get anything done if Congress is continuing to be in, in this stalemate?
1: As the campaign dragged on, they kept thinking and talking about it as they trudged through the snow in Burlington or stayed up late at night in the conference room of their office.
4: Towards the end of the Bernie campaign, when it became um, pretty clear that Bernie wasn't going to win it, what we were thinking at the time was, well, you know, we just saw this incredible thing happen with the Sanders campaign. you know, Total no name compared to Hillary Clinton. uh, Came out of nowhere and raised tons of money, created this huge national operation, and built the movement.
5: And so what if we took this national, presidential-sized campaign, except directed it towards Congress?
1: Coming out of the Sanders campaign, it seemed obvious to them that establishment politicians weren't up to the challenge. So why not just vote them all out? replace the entirety of Congress with regular people. First, they started a group called Brand New Congress, and it set out to do just that, replace all of Congress. But pretty quickly, they decided to focus on the Democratic side of the aisle, and they founded another organization called Justice Democrats. Alex Rojas is the Justice Democrats' current executive director. And full disclosure, Takuna Lam Productions, the organization that makes this podcast, has done some paid media consulting work for Organizing for Justice, which is an affiliate of Justice Democrats. Anyway, back to the story. A lot of people, even in the progressive movement, thought they were nuts.
4: I just remember, like, trying to, you know, get phone calls with, like, any progressive group and they just, they just, you know, laugh at us or not even take our pick up our calls.
1: But they kept at it. The idea was that they could run a national campaign for their congressional slate and pool together resources and staff that could help all the candidates. Here's Shoycott pitching the idea on the Rachel Maddow show.
3: So first of all, I think I understand what your idea is, when I just explained this idea of sort of running a presidential candidate with 400 heads. Is that, is that fair?
4: That's, I mean, that's a great description of it, yeah. I mean, the, our idea really is to run this single unified presidential style campaign that's going to look a lot like the Bernie Sanders campaign.
1: First, they had to figure out how to recruit all these candidates. They started with a pretty simple and surprisingly effective tool. They created an online form which anyone could use to nominate their friend or family member or a community leader.
5: We call it like extraordinary, ordinary people in communities across America that really represent the diversity of America, not just in ethnicity, but also in background.
1: Once they had set the form up, they just went out and promoted it.
5: If you go to justicedemocrats.com slash nominate, anyone can flag someone that they think should be in Congress.
1: One person who filled out that form was Gabriel Ocasio-Cortez, AOC's brother. Here's Gabriel from an interview with Matt Rogers and Bowen Yang on their podcast, Las Culturistas.
4: You know, I'm in my car in the rain and I only pulled over because I hate driving in the rain. And while I'm actually killing time in the rain, I nominate my sister. I, I think I probably made my sister sound like,
2: like she could probably part the seat. I was... Very wow. adamant about, like, you better call her. I was like, wow. I was like, give her five minutes. I was like, if it isn't worth your time, I'll pay you. But give her five minutes. I was like, before you say no, call her.
5: It, it stood out that he was like, just have one conversation. I promise you.
1: It turned out she was exactly the type of candidate they were looking for. Alexandria Ocasio Cortez was born in 1989 to a working class family with Puerto Rican roots. She grew up in the Bronx and in Westchester. Her father died when she was a sophomore in college. This was 2008, the height of the financial crisis. Her mother's job cleaning houses wasn't enough to pay the bills, and they battled foreclosure. After college, she moved back to New York to help support her mom. She did community organizing, but to pay the bills, she worked as a bartender. She wanted to go to law school, but couldn't afford it. Like Shoycott and Alex, she volunteered on Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign. At the end of that year, after Donald Trump had won the presidency, she and a friend road tripped across the country to join the protest against the Dakota Access Pipeline at Standing Rock. For months, the Standing Rock Sioux and their allies have camped out on the banks of the Cannonball River in North Dakota. Their mission? to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline. It's a cause that's drawn the support of thousands from across the globe. She was barely making ends meet at the time, but they borrowed a 98 Subaru Outback, raised some money on GoFundMe to fund their trip and buy supplies for the protesters, and headed to North Dakota.
0: Um, But anyways, after working on that campaign, I really started feeling invested in terms of, I'm not exiting here, right?
3: Uh, no. Yay. Cool.
0: Sorry to interrupt. No, it's fine. we got to navigate. Um, but I started feeling...
2: Oh,
3: yeah. <laughs> oh, that was our exit? <laughs> yeah, was sorry.
1: She live-streamed much of their journey on Facebook.
0: We just got to camp. We're about to go meet with one of the directors of the women's council here who, who invited us. So um, they're playing flute right now.
2: Oh, I wish that you guys could see this. It's really beautiful.
1: Witnessing the protests at Standing Rock which had been organized by young indigenous people, was transformative for AOC. Here she is reflecting on it in an interview with Rolling Stone reporter Tessa Stewart.
0: Seeing what was going on there, how the Lakota Sioux and native peoples and people really just all over the country coming together in protection of not just American land, but the entire water supply of of the Midwest, And to really see how a private corporation, a private fossil fuel corporation, essentially militarized itself against the American people, you know, I I really felt like I had to do more.
1: She would later tell Religion and Politics magazine, quote, I remember leaving that camp and thinking, Lord, just do with me what you will. Allow me to be a vessel. As she was driving back to New York from North Dakota, she got a call asking her to run for Congress. She was one of many potential candidates that Shoycott, Alex, and the rest of their team were interviewing.
0: And about six months later, I decided to run. Mm -hmm.
1: True to form, her first announcement came on Instagram.
0: Hey, everyone. I have a super crazy announcement, and I'm just gonna share it on Instagram stories first because it can go away, right? At least in 24 hours.
1: It was very much a shoestring operation. Mostly, she just started hitting the pavement, talking to community leaders, trying to raise a little money from small donations.
0: Thank you everyone so much for your support after my congressional announcement. And just so you know, so far our average campaign contribution right now is $12, and that makes me super happy and excited.
1: She was still working at a taco bar called Flats Fix to make ends meet, canvassing on her days off. Her now famous campaign logo was designed by a regular from the bar. Pretty quickly, it became clear that AOC was a natural on the stump.
0: I just want to break it down real quick because I know we don't have a lot of time. We've got four crises in this community. We have an affordability crisis. We have an income inequality crisis. We have an immigrant security crisis. And we have a homelessness crisis in this city. And this development hurts all of those things. It makes all of those...
1: One person who jumped on her campaign early was Walid Shaheed, who we met back in episode one. He joined Alex and Shoikot at Justice Democrats in 2017.
3: I went and joined JD as a uh, comm staffer, and the first campaign they put me on was AOCs. What was that first meeting like? We met up at a restaurant in um, downtown Manhattan, and the restaurant we were going to was packed. And she was like, oh, let's go to... um, let's go to another restaurant in around the neighborhood. And I was like pointed to this one across the street. And she was like, uh, that's where I work. I don't really want to go there. <laughs> um, and I, I was with my friend, Max Berger, who was also working at JD. And um, Max was like, Max looked at her shoes, which were incredibly, you know, torn up. And um, yeah, just looked very lived in. And Max was like, nice shoes. And she was like, LOL. And now those shoes are in a museum <laughs> somewhere. I guess the I guess the one word I would use to describe her would be fearless because there was not one moment in our conversation where she seemed afraid, despite the fact that it's incredibly scary to run for Congress. And maybe, you know, maybe she was afraid internally and she just didn't show it to me. But um, I was just I you know if I had to do what she did, I would be throwing up every day. Um, but yeah, she was just really excited about it.
1: One of the first things Walid worked on was setting up fundraisers for her.
3: So, like, literally no one knew who she was. And, you know, we set up these fundraisers in the Bronx and in Queens. And, you know, they weren't huge, but people did come out, more people than I thought would. And, you know, a lot of the people at the Bronx fundraiser, the first fundraiser she ever held were uh, people from the community, lots of people of color, lots of older people. And she got up and did her stump speech. And I, like, watched this, like, former cop who was in the audience just kind of tear up.
1: At the time, Waleed had serious doubts about her chances. And seeing how she gave people hope was actually hard for him.
3: I watched him tear up and I just felt incredibly sad. um, Because I was like, she has no chance. And she's, like, inspiring these people. And I had just finished the Bernie campaign. And it was so, it was such a letdown that he didn't win. And I was just so sad and depressed about it. And I just, like, immediately was like, oh, I just don't want to lead people into you know, feeling like we can win this, because I don't know if we can. Um, and I don't want to be responsible for letting all these people down again.
1: Meanwhile, shoycott Alex, and their colleagues were wrestling to figure out the best path forward. The national campaign of hundreds of candidates that they had dreamed of was not materializing. Things were not looking great for any of the Justice Democrats' candidates, and they were stretched pretty thin.
4: Around the end of 2017, we kind of had like, a, we had to do a little bit of like a, you know, self-reflection of where are we, and what's going on, you know. At the time, we're like, okay, like none of these campaigns are really gonna probably win, and so we decided at that point that, um, you know, let's just do another hail mary, uh, let's go all in on AOC's campaign. Joe Crowley was the most powerful person we we're challenging at the time. He was in line to be speaker after uh, Nancy Pelosi was actually going to make a run for it. So like we thought, you know, if we could, we could beat this guy. um, You know, maybe that would be a big deal. And it was just, you know, this decision of like, this is all we we have. You know, we have the staff we have, that we have the money we have. We know we it's going to go nowhere if we just if we just go evenly with everybody. But that was hard. You know, that was a difficult conversation with a lot of the other candidates who were running at the time.
1: Shoycott and Alex again found themselves packing up and moving to work on a scrappy, long-shot campaign.
4: And I just moved to New York in January and, um, and decided, you know, spent full-time on AOC's campaign.
5: I slept on the floor for like two months on Troycott's apartment floor and then popped to different people's apartments <laughs> based on where we needed to be in the district. And I know a lot of people did that.
1: A big part of the message of the campaign was just that Joe Crowley didn't represent his district, ideologically or demographically.
3: The top of the Democratic Party looks a lot like Joe Crowley, overly wealthy, overly male, overly white. And the bottom of the party looks a lot more like AOC, and that's, you know, women, people of color, young people working class people and this fight really symbolized that divide.
5: One of the things that I noticed in being largely out of the Queen's office was the large amount of young Latina women that were coming in to not only organize but wanting to take up leadership positions on the campaign.
1: The AOC campaign felt they had grassroots energy behind them, but it was still a huge long shot. Beating incumbents is really hard As the primary approached, Alex and Shoycott saw the candidates they had recruited losing, one after the other. This Hail Mary with AOC had to succeed.
4: It all comes down to like a few sometimes lucky bets.
1: One of those bets was that unconventional campaign video we heard earlier. You can see her putting on makeup, stopping at a bodega, adjusting her high heels as she waits for the subway, just being a regular woman in New York while she delivers a powerful call for change.
0: This race is about people versus money. We've got people, they've got money. It's time we acknowledge that not all Democrats are the same. That a Democrat who takes corporate money, profits off foreclosure, doesn't live here, doesn't send his kids to our schools, doesn't drink our water or breathe our air, cannot possibly represent us. What the Bronx and Queens needs is...
1: The next big break for the campaign came when Joe Crowley didn't show up for a debate. He sent a surrogate, a former New York City councilwoman, to debate in his place. This generated an avalanche of media coverage. The New York Times editorial board wrote that, if you want to be speaker, Mr. Crowley, don't take voters for granted. And they even quipped that he left his constituents wondering, quote, what are we, chopped liver?
4: We just hustled at that point to try to like, get that bigger, turn it into an actual debate commitment, which you know, then Alexandra actually knocked out of the
0: park. This is a moral problem. And your response has been to apply more paperwork to this situation, to have ICE collect more information on immigrants. And that puts our communities in danger. And it also conveys a profound misunderstanding of how we should be approaching this problem.
1: At this point, the race was getting national media attention and they were raising decent money, but election day was looming.
5: One of the hardest moments that I remember from the campaign was being one of the few people that knew the polling results about a week out from election day. We were down like 20 points, almost 20 points.
1: How did you feel going into election day?
5: I was really anxious and nervous because of the poll that I just shared. And I genuinely was not sure what would happen i started off the day thinking that we were going to lose and then the sheer number of people that came in from across the country across the district uh, across the world there's like some guy that showed up from (laughs) japan and like a few other countries um, where i was like well I think we can do this because not only do we have like these people showing up to like make sure that we've got every polling location covered. When we're on the phone and we're getting texts, it's like people are saying they're going to vote for us, <laughs> and like pretty large numbers. So maybe it's not as bad as I as I thought.
0: Um, it was a grassroots campaign. Can you believe the went. numbers that you're seeing right now? I- I cannot believe these numbers right now, but I do know that every single person here has worked their butt off to change the future of the Bronx and Queens.
3: That's what I know. That's what I know.
0: And that this victory belongs to every single grassroots organizer, every working parent, every mom, every member of the LGBTQ community, every single person is responsible.
1: Finally, the Justice Democrats had a huge win and it generated a torrent of media attention.
0: She's now on track to become the youngest congresswoman in history. Please welcome Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez.
1: As it became clear that AOC was going to be a media sensation, not just one of the 435 other representatives, her team wanted to capitalize on the situation. When people like Shoycott and Alex put their lives on hold to jump on the Bernie campaign, when AOC decided to run for office, it was because they wanted to make change and they needed the right people in office to do that. Now they had a foot in the door. How are they going to use it?
4: We suddenly had the spotlight and we were like, okay, what's what's the big thing we can try to to push and, and make more front and center?
1: The answer, although they hadn't quite settled on the name yet, was the Green New Deal. It represented justice for the community that AOC stood with at Standing Rock, for the people in her district who lacked clean water, and for people all across America experiencing both the effects of climate change and a broken economy.
4: When we talk about the like green New Deal, it's like not it's it's about solving climate change and using that as a vehicle to um, build up the wealth of the nation and and help people
5: thrive, right? We've leaned so hard into the Green New Deal because it's not just, it's the climate crisis wrapped into uh, income inequality, racism, and that's what actually speaks to, I think, like what most Americans and what our generation is experiencing all wrapped into one thing.
1: As the next congressional term approached, the Justice Democrats, AOC's office, and Sunrise all started talking. Waleed knew Varshney and her co-founders at Sunrise and introduced them to the Justice Democrats crew.
5: I remember meeting Varshney at a bar <laughs> and, and just, you know, being like, oh, wow, there's other, like, 25-year-olds here <laughs> in the movement that are doing really cool stuff. And then a few weeks later, yeah, it was the, basically, we were all scheming about the launch of the Green New Deal.
1: And of course, right after the general election, Sunrise decided to stage their sit-in at Nancy Pelosi's office and reached out to Shoycott. He took the idea to AOC.
4: I, I remember, I was like, well, you know, they, these folks are doing the sit-in, and they love for you to, you know, promote it or tweet about it. And she's like, oh yeah, of course. And I was like, you know, and I sort of like half joking. I was like, "Or oh, you join them?" You know, sitting on, on your first date, <laughs> and she was so excited by that. She was like, "Yes, one hundred percent." You know, of course, like it, she agreed to it. And then as we got closer to the day, uh, it got scarier and scarier. And you know, Alexandra is a normal person, like any normal person. If you're about to do something really scary, you sometimes get scared. You know, this. I know she's got this like fearless persona, and and everyone knows she thinks she's superhuman, but she's a human. And so, you know, we I just, I just asked Alexander, I was like, you know, I know this seems scary, but why don't you come just like meet some of these kids, you know, meet the Sunrise uh, folks and um, see what they're all about. We need you to make the pressure. We, we cannot do it alone. Well.
0: We need to have backup. We need to show people that this is the fight for our lucky
4: lives. And that is, was really what sealed it for her, you know, when she went to that church. She saw all these, uh, you know, Sunrise Movement activists, like, sleeping on the floor. And they're just so hyped up. They're so excited to see her and, and feel like, for once, there's somebody in elected office, office that's actually fighting, you know, <laughs> on behalf of real people. And, and that was, she couldn't back down at that point, right?
1: And she didn't. She joined Sunrise in Nancy Pelosi's office and immediately made the Green New Deal her central policy. But why was the sit-in such a big deal? Why did the specific combination of AOC and Sunrise in Nancy Pelosi's office, calling for a Green New Deal, set off such a whirlwind?
4: I mean, holy crap! Like a new member of Congress sitting in on the speakers in the speaker's office on her in her first day in D.C. Not even her first day in office, her first day in D.C. Like I couldn't hand them a better thing on a platter, you know? It's it's uh, couldn't make something out of that there. So I, I thought it would be big, you know. <laughs> that, that I definitely thought it'd be big, and it was in the context of the IPCC report, there's like a few stories that combine, like Sunrise is this youth movement that is challenging, you know, Protestant Democratic Party. Uh, But then AOC's addition to it gives them actual institutional power to be challenging with, which I think makes the whole thing seem more real and worthy of covering to the media as well, you know.
1: The other important point that it's worth noting here is before the Green New Deal, progressives really didn't know how to talk about climate change other than to say it's a problem. Bernie Sanders helped mainstream ideas like Medicare for All, a $15 minimum wage, and free public college. But there really wasn't an equivalent for climate.
4: You know, the Bernie campaign in 2016, uh, people don't always remember this, but it wasn't actually like a very awesome climate change campaign. He was running on like a carbon tax.
1: At the time, there just wasn't a well-articulated progressive climate change platform like Medicare for All is for health care. The Green New Deal changed that.
2: It sort of introduced the idea of a fundamentally different way of looking at climate policy from, I think, what had been familiar in the staid halls of Congress among the septuagenarians who occupy those halls and whose ideas about climate (laughs) were, let's say, not fresh.
1: That's David Roberts, a climate reporter for the publication Vox. He's been covering climate since the early 2000s.
2: So the core substance of the Green New Deal has, like, in the blink of a political eye, become kind of the default climate policy of the left. And now you see that every presidential candidate, you know, the the dims in the House, dims in the Senate, like, everyone is proposing variations of this now.
1: That begs the question, though, why wasn't there a progressive climate change platform? Why did it take a bunch of 20-somethings running a long-shot campaign and a youth protest movement to come up with one? That story, next time, on Generation Green New Deal.
2: I felt like there were a lot of these, like, really well-funded environmental groups out there that were focused on climate change. And where that all came crashing down was in New Orleans, uh, in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina.
1: That's coming up on the next episode of Generation Green New Deal, which will air in two weeks. Next week, we're bringing you a conversation with Michaela Jefferson. Sunrise activist from San Diego.
5: Climate change, like, it's not just about science. Like, it's a human story, and it's deeply emotional, and it is about loss. I feel like if people understood that and they felt the same way I do, then, I mean, we would be making a lot more gains.
1: In the meantime, if you want to hear more from Shoykat Chakrabarty, he's the host of a new podcast with Justice Democrats co-founders Corbin Trent and Zach Exley. It's called Building the Dream
4: we talk about how can we actually get to the kind of idealized thriving America that we dream is possible.
1: Recent guests include Jamal Bowman, Leah Stokes, and Crystal Ball. Go listen to Building the Dream on your favorite podcast app. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, please make sure to subscribe and leave us a rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us. You can follow us for more on Twitter and Instagram at Generation GND. We're on Facebook as Generation Green New Deal. And you can find links to all of this, subscribe to our newsletter, watch a companion video to this episode, and even see a preview of the documentary this podcast is based on at generationgreennewdeal.com. Generation Green New Deal is produced by Takuna Lam Productions and distributed by Critical Frequency. I'm your host, Sam Eilertsen. Nate Birnbaum and I created the show, and we wrote and produced this episode with Michael Catano. Our executive producers are Amy Westervelt and Eric Axelman. Our story consultant is Maggie Lemire. Nick Damons is our script consultant. Marielle Olentine helped us produce this season of Generation Green New Deal, and she produces our companion videos. Michael Catano is our editor and also our mix engineer. Polka Data is our impact producer. Alex Ostroff is our archival producer. Transcription by Shelby Lambert. Our artwork was created by Matthew Fleming, and our theme song is Which Side Are You On by B. Dolan. Special thanks this week to Guido Girgenti, Elizabeth Case, Teresa Preston Warner, Preston Warner Ventures, the Topol Family Foundation, and the Solberga Foundation. Thanks for listening.